Chapter 15 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Isaac Janey. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector Macpherson. Chapter 15. The Nature of Comets. In the two previous chapters, mention was made of the two principal classes of comets, comets which have been proved to belong to the solar system, and those comets which either belong to our system, revolving in uncertain periods, or only pay a fleeting visit to the planetary regions, dashing away again into space. Although these two classes differ in many respects, they only differ in regard to their orbits. That is to say, all comets, whether they belong to the solar system or not, are alike in their constitution and nature. And in this chapter, an attempt will be made to explain the complicated phenomena connected with them. The most striking feature about a bright comet is its tail. As remarked in a previous chapter, telescopic comets are often devoid of tails, but all bright comets are distinguished by these appendages, and consequently, to the average man and the casual stargazer, a comet is only of interest if it possesses a tail. One of the most notable things about the tails of comets is that they are always pointed away from the sun. If the comet is approaching the sun, the tail follows the head. If it is receding from the sun, the head follows the tail. This is a remarkable fact, which shows that comets lack the stability which characterizes the planets. For many years this fact puzzled astronomers, and it was not until the beginning of last century that any progress was made towards an explanation. The astronomer Olbers of Bremen, well known for his discovery of the asteroids, explained the tails of comets very simply. The sun not only attracts comets and planets to itself, but its light exercises a repulsive power on minute particles, which are thus driven off in a direction opposite to the sun. This theory was very fully elaborated by a famous Russian astronomer, the late Professor Bredekine. Bredekine's researches led him to divide the tails of comets into three types. The first of these consists of long straight tails, pointed directly away from the sun, represented by the tails of the comets of 1811 1843, and 1861. And the second of these types, represented by those comets bearing the names of Donati and Coggia, the tails, although on the whole pointed away from the sun, are considerably curved. The tails of the third type have been described as short, strongly bent, brush-like emanations, which, in bright comets, seem to be only found in combination with tails of the higher classes. He showed that, probably, tails of the first types are formed of hydrogen, those of the second of hydrocarbon, and those of the third of iron, with a mixture of sodium and some other elements. On the whole, this theory is considered satisfactory. The question, however, presents itself, what is this remarkable repulsive force? There seems to be a general agreement among the scientists that the force is electrical. It only affects the very smallest and most insignificant particles of matter. And this explains why the planets and the solid bodies are not affected by the force. It has also been suggested that the repelling force may be due to what is called light pressure, the action of rays of light on very minute particles of matter. So much has been learned of the nature of comets by theory. Most of our knowledge of these objects, however, is due to direct observation. The invention of the spectroscope, about the middle of the 19th century, referred to in a previous chapter, resulted in a considerable increase of our knowledge of comets and cometary phenomena. It was shown early in the history of this line of research, by Donati and others, 
that the light of comets is partly inherent and partly reflected. The late Sir William Huggins, the late Dr. Copeland, and others ascertained the existence in the heads of comets of hydrocarbon gas, and this has been since confirmed by other observers. These observations, of course, give support to Bredekind's theory of comets' tails. In 1882, this theory was still further confirmed by observations which the late Dr. Copeland and others made a Wells comet of that year. On May 27th, Copeland ascertained the existence of sodium in the comet. This was the first occasion on which that element was recognized in one of these bodies. The same astronomer also recognized sodium in the Great Comet of 1882. A comet which contributed materially to our knowledge of cometary phenomena was that discovered on September 1, 1908, by Morehouse, an American astronomer. Observations on this object revealed the presence of the poisonous gas cyanogen, which was indeed the most prominent element in the comet, and which dominated its spectrum. Other remarkable disclosures were made by this comet. A large number of photographs were taken at the Goodsill Observatory, Minnesota. Professor H. C. Wilson, of that institution, remarks as follows on this comet. While the observer was guiding the telescope for these photographs, the portion of the comet's tail which was in the field of the guiding telescope grew visibly fainter, and appeared to detach itself from the head. The two photographs taken with the six-inch camera show that this appearance was real, and that the bright part of the tail was actually detached from the head of the comet and was moving outward. On October 15, a bend became apparent in the main tail, which photographers showed to be traveling rapidly from the head. This outward motion, says one observer, was also traceable in the case of several knots of brightness in the tail. Morehouse's was not the only comet which was observed to break up. The Great Comet of 1882 was also seen to throw off portions of its mass. A German astronomer noted on 5th and 7th October of that year two centers of condensations in the comet, while on the 9th of the same month Schmidt detected a little nebulous object close to the comet, which had been apparently thrown off. Professor Bernard, some days later, glimpsed six or eight little cometary masses separate from the comet. Another instance of cometary disruption was afforded by Brooks' second periodic comet, discovered in 1889. About a month after its discovery, it was seen to have thrown off four fragments. In his interesting work on comets, Mr. Chambers writes as follows, Two of these were faint and soon disappeared, but the other two brighter ones were miniatures of the main body, each having a nucleus and a tail. For a while, these moved away from their primary. In three weeks, the nearer companion ceased to recede. It then expanded and finally disappeared. The fainter companion continued to recede until it had become, a month from discovery, brighter than the parent comet. In another month, it began to approach its parent, its head swelling and becoming faint, the tail disappearing. It is probable that astronomers have learned more of the constitution and nature of comets from one small member of the Sun's family than from all the other comets, periodic and non-periodic, put together. On February 27, 1826, Wilhelm von Biela, an amateur astronomer at Josefstadt in Bohemia, detected a faint comet which was independently noticed ten days later by a French observer, Gambart at Marseille. When its orbit was calculated, it was found to be identical with those of comets which appeared in 1772 and 1805. The comet turned out to be a periodic one, revolving round the sun 
in a period of between six and seven years. Its return was predicted for 1832, and true to calculation, it reappeared in that year. Its reappearance was made the occasion of a comet scare. Certain calculations were made which seemed to show that portions of the comet would sweep over part of Earth's orbit. This statement gave rise to a dread lest the comet should strike the Earth and our world be destroyed. A panic ensued among the ignorant, especially in Paris, and the popular excitement was not cooled until the director of the Paris Observatory announced that the Earth and the comet would at no time approach within 50 million miles of each other. The comet was not seen in 1839, owing to its unfavorable position in the heavens, but on November 28, 1846, it was rediscovered. In less than a month, it was seen to be pear-shaped, and on December 29, and early in January, it was found that the comet had actually separated into two distinct portions. All over the world, astronomers observed the comet with amazement, for this was the first occasion within the memory of man on which a comet was seen to divide into two portions. The comet again returned in 1852. The companion comet was again seen, but at a much greater distance. It was now a million and a quarter miles from its primary, eight times its distance in 1846. In 1859, the comet was not observed, but this was not considered remarkable, as it was in that year unfavorably placed for observation. However, much interest was displayed at its return in 1866, at which date it was expected to be very favorably placed. An active search was instituted, but neither Bieler's comet nor its little companion was seen. The comet was obviously lost, and astronomers gave up hope of ever seeing it again. But an extraordinary thing happened. The comet was again due to appear in 1872. It was not visible, but when the Earth crossed its path on the night of November 27, there was a magnificent shower of shooting stars. Beginning shortly after sunset, the rain of fire, as one observer called the display, lasted until 11 o'clock. 400 meteors were counted in a minute and a half and some magnificent fireballs equal in size to the apparent diameter of the moon were observed. The Earth had not collided with Biela's comet, but it was plowing its way through the wreckage and debris into which the comet had dissolved. A German astronomer, Klinkerfuss, observing at Göttingen, was impressed with the idea that Biela's comet, or at least a portion of it, might still be visible, and concluded that if it were to be seen at all, it would be in the southern hemisphere, in the opposite region of the heavens from the point from which the meteors had radiated. Accordingly, convinced that the meteors represented the shattered debris of the comet, and believing that other portions of it might still be in existence, he telegraphed to Poxon, the astronomer at Madras, the following message. Biela touched Earth November 27. Search near Theta Centauri. Pogson promptly turned his telescope to that portion of the sky and glimpsed on December 2, and again on the following evening, a very faint object, which he at first took for Biela's comet or its companion. It was shown, however, that it could not have been either, but was probably another fragment which was detached at an earlier date. The orbit of Biela's comet was thus shown to be identical with the meteoric shower known as the Andromedids and another fine shower was observed in 1885, when the Earth again crossed the path of the lost comet. 
Biela's comet therefore no longer exists. It has been dissolved into fragments. And with some of these fragments, our planet collided on November 27, 1872, with the results that a display of celestial fireworks took place, which has seldom been surpassed. Thus, we see that comets die, as Kepler said three centuries ago. Unlike the planets, they are not lasting, but break up into small particles of matter, which, when they enter our Earth's atmosphere, become ignited with the friction of the atmosphere and appear in the form of shooting stars. To sum up, we know that comets are bodies of extreme tenuity. Stars are usually to be seen shining through them undimmed. And although they are of enormous bulk, they have practically no weight. That is to say, they exercise no disturbing influences on the motions of the planets. In all these points, comets differ from planets. And as already mentioned, there is another important point of difference. Although nothing in the changing universe can be called eternal, the sun and the planets are certainly lasting bodies, but comets are not lasting. Even in the short period of man's life, comets have been seen to break up and disappear. An admirable summary of our knowledge of comets is given by Mr. E. W. Maunder as follows. Though the bulk of comets is huge, they contain extraordinary little substance. Their heads must contain some solid matter, but it is probably in the form of a loose aggregation of stones enveloped in vaporous material. There is some reason to suppose that comets are apt to shed some of these stones as they travel along their paths, for the orbits of the meteors that cause our greatest star showers are coincident with the paths of comets that have been observed. But it is not only by shedding its loose stones that a comet diminishes its bulk. It also loses through its tail. As the comet gets close to the sun, its head becomes heated and throws off concentric envelopes, much of which consists of matter in an extremely fine state of division. Mr. Maunder goes on to show that for a particle of matter less than one twenty-five thousandth part of an inch in diameter, the repulsive force of the sun's light is greater than the attraction force of the central orb itself. Particles in the outer envelope of the comet below this size will be driven away in a continuous stream and will form that thin, luminous fog which we see as the comet's tail. Thus, comets lose in bulk and mass through their heads and their tails. Of the subsequent history of the luminous fog, driven off by the repelling power, we know nothing. But of the loose stones shed by the head, we know a great deal. To a consideration of these loose stones, the next chapter will be devoted. End of chapter 15